All right, so this, uh, this work that I'm doing here, this paper, I guess I could call it, is uh, the fruit of commentary work I'm doing on Ecclesiastes. Uh, Lord willing, that'll come out next year. Uh, so this is thinking about the idea of work. And I would say that work isn't incidental, but it's actually integral to what's happening in Ecclesiastes, mainly on the fact that the programmatic question for the book or how the book begins, one, three, is what does man or humanity gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this is a central question to the book of Ecclesiastes is how do we do our work, right? So the work has been affected by the fall, but work preceded the fall. So those themes will be interwoven here as I go along. Uh, the handout is at the front door. So hopefully you snag one of these because it'll make it better uh, if you're following me along as I go through this. All right, so distracted or delighted in our work, lessons from Ecclesiastes. Introduction, the message of Ecclesiastes. One of the major challenges in interpreting Ecclesiastes is to determine its basic message. This challenge is exacerbated by the reality that Kohelet, the author, perceives a polarized world, an initially good creation that has been twisted and corrupted by the fall. On the one hand, suffering, frustration, and death result from the curse. On the other hand, the benefits of gaining wisdom, discovering what is good, and enjoying life proceed from the intrinsic design and God's creational order. And here I'm going to address this sort of bipolar approach to the book that interpreters often take. Those who posit, posit that the message of the book is negative focus primarily on the passages reflecting the effects of the curse. This is often referred to as the pessimistic interpretation. This view relates to Kohelet's comprehensive motif found in 1-2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or an equivalent translation. Interpreters point also to Kohelet's use of the phrase, under the sun, his emphasis on death, and his frustrations over the frequent subversion of justice. In contrast, those who argue that the message of Ecclesiastes emphasizes the benefits of creation embrace what is often called the positive interpretation. This view is generally linked to the carpe diem or enjoyment of life passages. For example, 224, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For example, Kohelet's use of simcha, this Hebrew word, unequivocally refers to enjoyment. There are other expressions that overlap or give more detail to enjoyment, such as discover what is good, do good, or enjoy, that is literally see life. These interpreters focus also on Kohelet's epistemology, his theocentric focus, and his literary dependence on the Torah, meaning these are things which we could see point to a positive uh, evaluation of life in the book. My own approach to the book follows the contours of this latter view modified into what I term the positive realist interpretation. I have a footnote there where I say I add realist to emphasize that Kohelet is realistic about the frustrations and enigmas of the fallen world and not to be construed as naively optimistic. So he's not optimistic. As I often say, it's, it's not a Hallmark movie with a soft glow focus, uh, but nonetheless, he's taking a positive uh, understanding of the world that we live in, in the end. On the surface, Kohelet's negative conclusions about life seem antithetical to his positive ones. To explain how he navigates this type of world, Kohelet recounts his undertaking to discover life's meaning and purpose. As he assesses the world around him, his epistemology seems at times influenced by a negative philosophy. He says in 2.17, so I hated life. Yet his perspective is shaped ultimately by the Torah, by that I mean the law, by Israel's wisdom tra tradition, and by a theocentric worldview. 
As he invites his audience to explore the world with him, his point is to demonstrate that those who fear God and joyfully appropriate God's good gifts can make the most of life in a world that has been corrupted by the fall. My tagline sort of for the book is finding joy in a fallen world. And I think that's essentially what Kohelet is inviting us to do. The term Havel, which is a key term in the book, enigma, a preferable translation to vanity, appears five times in 1, 2, and 3 and 12, 8, with 29 or 30 uses found at significant junctures, suggesting it is the core term of the book. In commencing the book, the use of Havel in 1, 2 catches the reader's attention. Enigma of enigmas, says Kohela, enigma of enigmas, everything is enigmatic. This verse expresses Kohelet's all-encompassing proposition, everything is enigmatic. Three additional uses of this term are found at the end of the book, again, appearing as Kohelet's comprehensive thesis. By framing this all-inclusive statement at the inception and conclusion of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet indicates that this is the book's theme. The significance of this thesis is not to be missed, for it indicates that Kohelet's message focuses on his inability to comprehend the significance of activities in this life. Kohelet's motif of the enigmatic nature of all the facets of life finds support in his theological a prioris. His presuppositions reflect that he has a solid grasp of the early chapters of Genesis as well as of Deuteronomy. In wisdom literature, such as Ecclesiastes, we should expect this type of influence. Um, on page three now, Zimmerly states that wisdom is found within the framework of a theology of creation. Moreover, connections between Deuteronomy and wisdom have long been noted. In Ecclesiastes, Kohelet's understanding of the unfathomable world finds its theological footing in the early chapters of Genesis. The influence of Genesis is initially seen when Kohelet poses his thematic question in 1.3, what advantage has man from all his work at which he toils under the sun? Kohelet has not changed his emphasis from his generalized statement in 1-2, but has reduced his reflections on life's meaning and purpose to the biblical concept of labor or work. He poses his question in terms of the dominion mandate originally given to Adam, who as God's vice regent was to subdue the earth. When he chose to disobey God, however, the fall occurred. Human sin resulted in God cursing the land, making humanity's labor strenuous. The curse brought death and destruction so that the creation groans under this bondage and longs for God's redemption. This quest to find significance through toil characterizes Kohelet's search for human purposes, pur pur human purpose. The Genesis background further informs the theology of Ecclesiastes about work in the context of life and death. Man was made from dust and to the dust he will one day return. Uh, here, Ecclesiastes alludes to Genesis in the fall account, Genesis 3. All of humanity's efforts and attainments thus have an intrinsic limitation and endpoint. Furthermore, man's unconfirmed creature holiness in Genesis 1 and 2 and subsequent depravity in Genesis 3 are also used as informing motifs in Ecclesiastes 7.29. This means that labor is now tainted by the sin curse. Drawing upon Genesis 3.16, Kohelet further describes the fractured relations between husbands and wives in 7.26-28. Work often arises in the context of strife and envy. Another motif drawn from Genesis is God's role as creator. In agreement with Genesis 1, God is the maker of all things, 11.5, and creator in 12.1. As the creator who labored to bring the cosmos into existence, work in itself is inherently good as God is. 
Sometimes this is a point I think people tend to forget when they think about work. In Genesis 1 to 3, God is also presented as the sovereign. In Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15, Kohelet recognizes God's absolute sovereign control over everything in life. Work is thus subject to the sovereign hand of God, both in what humans are permitted to do and prevented from doing. In Genesis, God created man in his image and likeness. As God's image bearer, finite man has derivative wisdom. Not only did man's wisdom have natural limitations as a created finite being, but God also imposed other limitations, such as do not eat, Genesis 2.17. When Satan tempted Eve, he challenged God's holy image bearers to gain more wisdom by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What Satan did not inform Eve about was that while gaining increased wisdom, humans would use this increased wisdom in the service of their resulting depravity. The theology of Genesis has a profound impact on Ecclesiastes. As a sage, Kohelet diligently studied and explored with wisdom every activity done on earth. However, God's curse on man and creation made this a burdensome task. After his poem on God's coordination of earthly activities with time, Kohelet observes that God has made everything appropriate in its season. Though unable to comprehend God's work, Kohelet appreciates the fitting nature of God's providential work. Man's quest for the scheme of things is a God-given capacity that Kohelet calls ha-olam, best translated as eternity, given its parallel use in verse 14. Eternity is part of humanity's metaphysical constitution as God's image bearer. Though man's longing to see God's scheme of things is divinely given, Kohelet also indicates that God placed limitations on mankind's ability to understand the scheme of things. Because of man's finitude and Edenic curse, God's providence is veiled and burdensome. God has also limited humanity's ability to comprehend God's moral governance of the cosmos and the future. Kohelet has thoroughly grasped the message of Genesis that God did not want mankind to pursue all wisdom and therefore thwarted their efforts in its pursuits that his own views on the limitations of knowledge and frustration that comes in its quest were based on Genesis seems apparent. Quoting there from uh, Foreman. Kohelet's leitmotif or his main theme about enjoying life is also dependent on Genesis. As R.K. Johnston notes about this recurring theme, Ecclesiastes and Genesis exhibit substantial agreement as to the central point of the creation motif that life is to be celebrated as a good creation of God. This recurring theme reflects Kohelet's expectation that God will bring blessing to his creation. Nevertheless, Kohelet recognizes that the fall has adversely affected humanity's ability to enjoy life. Because of the fall, God imposed a curse on creation. Since God directly made Adam and Eve, he created them in a state of innocence. When temptation came, they succumbed to it. Rather than being confirmed in creature holiness, they became totally depraved. Because Adam was a representative of creation, his sin resulted in his posterity and the rest of creation becoming subject to the curse. In Kohelet's attempt to understand and master life, he came to realize that it was an impossible task. In essence, Kohelet maintains that all creation has become twisted and crooked because of the fall. Yet, God began the process of blessing his creation, page 5. Uh, we can see this in Genesis 1, 3, 9, etc. He will deliver his creation from the bondage of the curse. Kohelet is a canonical writer who recognizes God's curse, yet he also understands that God is working to redeem his creation. This is why Kohelet can strongly recommend the enjoyment of the blessings of God while understanding the world to be suffering under the sin curse. This is the tension that we find in the book. Consequently, Kohelet's message rises from his theological grasp of Genesis. When Kohelet affirms in 1-2 that everything is enigmatic, this encompasses the negative features of life in a sin-cursed world and the positive dimensions of his expectation of God's redemption and renovation. Though he understands God's curse and blessing, he also lives in a world where God's providence is 
hidden. He desires to figure out God's scheme of things, but in his desire to understand and order life, his expectations have been thwarted. As such, Kohelet recognizes that life is full of tensions. Life carries an antithetical character. Although the sin-cursed world frustrates his quest for meaning and purpose, Kohelet recognizes that God is working to redeem his creation. It is this uh, theological foundation that influences our author to construct his work on a dialectical model. Right. Hopefully everybody's still with me. So basically this is just tracing kind of the introduction, what his uh, thought is. And what I want to do now is look at how he uses certain words that derive from this programmatic question in the book. Uh, a lot of this stuff is uh, probably a little bit more on the technical side if you haven't had Hebrew. Uh, so I may uh, summarize and abbreviate as I need to as we get along. And then uh, I want to get have, save time for the uh, conclusion where I'll try to draw this together. All right, so finite, frustrated, or fallen, or good, God-given, and grace-filled, the burden and delight of work in Ecclesiastes. Kohelet first addresses the theme of human labor in his programmatic question of 1-3, what advantage does mankind have for all his labor at which he toils under the sun? This question sets the agenda for the book, focusing on the advantages versus detriments humanity accrues through labor. All right, so the key word labor, amal, the noun and verb form of amal underscore this theme and introduce a key theme concerning work from all his labor at which he toils under the sun. By using the word all, a masculine construct noun that appears 5,400 times in the Old Testament with 90 times in Ecclesiastes, he shows that his observations about work were comprehensive. Uh, he begins the book by saying this essentially, that he's uh, looked at everything under, under the sun, under the heavens, and so he's, he's observed all of life. Labor is a translation of the noun amal and toils uh, from its cognate verb amal. The noun appears 55 times with 22 of these in Ecclesiastes and the verb 11 times with eight of these in it as well. Though not mentioned in this verse, this roots cognate noun amal laboring, uh, amal laboring appears five times as well. So this is clearly a key term. If you go down to the next paragraph, the noun amal is often used in the Old Testament with a negative sense such as trouble, hardship, harm, or toil. Along this line, Murphy avers that this term has a nuance of pain and trouble, and this note is sounded throughout the work. As this relates to its use in Ecclesiastes, Seau maintains this noun refers to one's struggles or the outcome of one's struggles. While the Amal word group may refer to the grueling nature of work that is a result of the curse, it may also refer to work as a divine gift. It is used with this sense in other contexts, such as 313. Since both nuances are involved in Ecclesiastes, it's preferable to use a more general word such as labor or work unless the context clearly warrants something to the contrary. There are two lines of evidence for this rendering. First, the semantic overlap of Amal with Asa, another word, reflects an understanding of work as a positive form of creation or construction. The term Asa often has a general sense such as to do, to work, etc. This is also the case with its related substantive that appears in Ecclesiastes, Ma'asa, which means work. Uh, both words are near synonyms with the Amal words. The Asa word group appears 64 times. Uh, and we see both of these in uh, Ecclesiastes 2, 4 to 11. And I have a, uh, a quotation here of that passage and you can kind of look down through it and see that he uses both works, uh, the word made, do, acquire, and the word work, amal. So both are used there. As, a, as is apparent from the above translation, the Asa word group is found seven times. All right, so that's one 
line of evidence for taking it on a more neutral or positive way. Uh, then I go to the, in the next paragraph, second, in 224, 3.13, and 5.19, mal is stated to come from God, certainly not meant as cynical observations about God's gifts. Uh, now, there are many interpreters that take uh, Kohelet's view of God as being cynical, but I, I don't think that that's the case. Consequently, because these words can be used in both ways, it's preferable to render this word group with labor or work with their general denotations related to mankind's undertakings. This verse additionally introduces the key prepositional phrase, under the sun. It is used for the first of 28 times. All of its appearances in the OT are found in Ecclesiastes. This prepositional phrase is also found in other Semitic literature. And I have some uh, examples of that in this paragraph. And basically, I'll, I'll just say this about that, that under the sun, uh, often is misconstrued in interpretation, I think, of Ecclesiastes to mean it's sim simply a limited man-centered perspective. That is to say, it's the best mankind can do under the sun. I've heard preachers say something to the effect of, you know, we need an above the sun perspective and Ecclesiastes gives us an under the sun perspective. My reply to that would be, uh, we have an Ecclesiastes both under the sun and above the sun because God is constantly mentioned in the book. So he's not limiting himself simply to this earth, but he's giving us a theocentric perspective as well. Uh, so we should uh, understand that, that tension in the book. All right, if I kind of go down to a, a paragraph, a couple paragraphs down where I start saying this, there is general agreement. Uh, there is general agreement on the translation of this prepositional phrase. In reference to its interpretation, virtually every interpreter agrees that, it is, that its descriptive function refers to the scope of Kohelet's examination of man's activities in this life. Some maintain it has a prescriptive understanding, that is to say that, you know, this is uh, only under the sun or a limited perspective. Some suggest that under the sun has implications for the hereafter. For example, Farmer affirms that although references to any sort of afterlife are rare in the rest of the canon of the Hebrew scriptures, the frequency with which Kohelet uses these related phrases seems to indicate it is a subject of interest or importance to him. Uh, Kohelet seems to hint that a distinction can be made between what happens on earth, under the sun, and what happens elsewhere. Again, while under the sun, according to Ogden, is Kohelet's preferred expression for life in this world, he claims that people must look for advantage even beyond this world. Uh, and then I talk about those who take a more uh, restrictive idea. Uh, let me kind of go down to the next paragraph where I start both positions arguing for a prescriptive understanding. Both positions arguing for a prescriptive understanding of under the sun are questionable. A problem with the view implying that this prepositional phrase points to an afterlife is that it does not hint at anything other than life in this world. A difficulty with the position maintaining that under the sun refers to life without God is that the negative conclusions do not exclude God and his work. An example of a passage that ends on a skeptical note is 8.17. I observed all of God's work. Indeed, no man is able to discover the activity done under the sun for which he labors in seeking, though he cannot comprehend. Even a wise man claims to know he still cannot comprehend. God is clearly not excluded from this picture. In response to this type of approach, DeRoshi perceptively argues that under the sun never brackets out God and his providential role from his inquiry. Rather than following these views, the descriptive function is explicit. For instance, the parallel nature of under heaven 
and under the sun in 113 to 14 demonstrate this. He says there, I applied my heart to study and explore by wisdom everything that is done under heaven. What a grievous task God has given to man to keep him busy. I observed all the works that are done under the sun and found all that all is enigmatic chasing the wind. Further justification appears in 8, 14, and 15, where upon the earth and under the sun are found. Uh, there it says, there is an enigma done upon the earth. There are righteous, man who, righteous men who get what the wicked deserve for their conduct, and there are wicked men who get what the righteous deserve for their conduct. I say this too is enigmatic. So I commend the enjoyment of life, for there is nothing better for man under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad, for this will accompany him in his work during the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Both texts cogently support Kohelet's search for meaning and purpose under the sun as occurring on earth or under heaven. In short, with his quest to find significance under the sun, Kohelet condenses his proposition in verse three to the subject of work. While labor is used both positively and negatively in this book, it has a negative slant in verse three since it does not provide man with any ultimate advantage. All right, so thinking about the term work, what I'm essentially arguing for here is that uh, it, it has a negative connotation in that it, it can be burdensome, but we shouldn't take it as exclusively negative. In other words, there can be positive ideas of working. Work in and of itself is not inherently negative because Kohelet, I think, recognizes that uh, God works in creation and that creation theology uh, influences his take in the book. All right, the next one, the next word is, I think, also a central concern in the book, and that is this idea of preoccupation. Uh, and this is where the idea of distraction and stress and anxiety and work comes to the fore. Beyond its potentially burdensome qualities, work may also be defined as occupying or distracting humanity. In the following, I will argue for a meaning of the key word ana in Ecclesiastes as preoccupation in its four occurrences. This theme relates to work in that humans labor often preoccupies them in ways that may be detrimental or harmful if not kept in proper perspective. On the other hand, often within these contexts, work is seen as a source of joy. All right, so again, this is a tension that Kohala is facing is uh, work is not necessarily intrinsically bad. However, because of the fall, it's been twisted and corrupted. Uh, so as we work, it keeps us busy or occupied, which can be a negative thing. It needs to be balanced with joy. And so that's kind of the tension that he draws out throughout the book. So what I'm going to do now is look at the four times that this word preoccupation is used and then draw some implications for that. All right, the first time, the first word uh, uh, use of the keyword ana occurs in 113. I applied my heart to study and explore by wisdom everything that is done under heaven. What a grievous task God has given mankind to keep him busy. Here, Kohelet applies himself diligently to the task of surveying all human effort and achievement. The Hebrew idiom to give one's heart occurs frequently in Ecclesiastes, while less frequently elsewhere in the Old Testament, to connote to set one's mind or to concentrate one's faculties or efforts toward a concept or task by carefully mastering it or attending to it. The term denoting his God-given task in Yan and its related verbal root traditionally designated as ana three to be occupied with occur by most assessments only in Ecclesiastes. Okay, just uh, caveat warning or whatever viewer discretion advised. The next part's a little more technical. Okay, so I'm looking at does, this is the argument. Here's the word ana. Does this occur in Ecclesiastes in a unique way? My argument is yes. 
And my further argument is it, it means specifically something like keep occupied or busy only in Ecclesiastes, but that we can establish that that's exactly what the semantics of the word is, if that makes sense. All right, so uh, here we go. We'll jump in. Uh, while the pairing here of these cognates heightens the sense of Kohelet's angst and creates a subtle wordplay, the exact nuance of the lexeme ana in Ecclesiastes remains disputed. BDB, that's an older lexicon, Halot and Nidot propose a total of four homonyms for the root ana. If you're not familiar with what a homonym is, uh, Wallace uses, uh, or actually Mounts uses the example of key in English, where key can mean the top of the basketball court, a metal thing that opens doors, the answer to an exam, all those things are meanings of key, and we determine the meaning in the context. So that's what I'm arguing here, that there are different homonyms, meaning the same word can mean different things in different contexts. This is something we learn as we uh, learn the biblical languages. All right, so the four homonyms that they say are answer, respond, reply, be bowed down, hunched up, humbled, afflicted, be occupied, busied with, or troubled about, or sing, sing praise of. In determining the meaning of the verb in Ecclesiastes, the lexicons classify its use under the third homonym, owing mainly to its connection with the noun inyan, which especially in post-biblical Hebrew carries the notion of a corresponding affair, subject, relation, or case. Questions remain, however, whether the book of Ecclesiastes actually uses a homonym that is entirely distinct from these other roots, and thus whether or not that third homonym exists at all. ARP Diamond observes, for example, the usual separation into four homonymic roots is problematic. Yet scholars suspicious of the four-part categorization of Anah have no consensus over whether the uses of the verb in Ecclesiastes should be assigned to homonym one or two. Uni Lee suggests the term in Ecclesiastes should be cataloged with homonym two. She says it should mean essentially to be to humble or to afflict. The 19th century lexicographer uh, W. Wilhelm Gesenius recognized only two homonyms for ana, conflating the categories of answer and sing into one root and the categories of be afflicted with or be occupied into another. He lists the uses of ana in Ecclesiastes under the latter category and defines the term as to bestow labor upon, to exercise oneself with, to suffer in labor. Gordas likewise connects the term to the second homonym and compares it to the cal anatu in passages meaning to be afflicted with. Fredericks goes so far as to suggest the third homonym has been created by scholars who favor a late date for Ecclesiastes to provide an opportunity to designate the language of the book as post-biblical Hebrew. Um, that's sort of a landmine to step on, but basically he wrote his dissertation on this whole topic of pushing back against the idea that the language of the book necessitates a late date for Ecclesiastes. It's a common scholarly position these days that the language of the book necessitates a post-exilic date, and I argue uh, with Fredericks that that's not the case. German scholars, cherry of the four-part classification, have traditionally linked the term uh, to homonym one. Delicat dismisses the four-part cataloging by absorbing, absorbing the third homonym into the first with a meaning of to turn towards something. And Labouchain concurs. Uh, he says there's no grounds for the differentiation of a root ana three to be occupied with from ana one. All right, so next paragraph. These discussions have reached an impasse, however, in the absence of definitive lexical data 
for or against the existence of the homonym. More recently, the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew has codified the wider semantic valency of ana by suggesting no fewer than 13 homonyms, including the four traditional roots and nine new roots. If you read the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, it'll just give you a gloss for every possible homonym that could exist. Uh, so then what is the appropriate nuance for a non-Ecclesiastes? Uh, Scores observes that in spite of these efforts to force a non to one or the other hom- homonymic category, there are sufficient grounds in the terms used in Ecclesiastes to warrant the recognition of a distinct root. He said it is exaggerated to declare that there is no semasiological uh, ground to separate root three from one since it's linguistic since in linguistic use, the two verbs are no doubt different lexemes. All right, next sentence. After careful study of the term, several reasons urge us to side with Schur's assessment. First, the repeated collocation or putting together of the term ana with the cognate inyan demonstrates that the terms share a common lexical field in Ecclesiastes. If then inyan is closer to the idea of task or activity than to the notions of affliction or response, then the meaning of ana falls within the same semantic domain. That this is in fact the case may be deduced from a close study of the other terms with which inyan is collocated. The term inyan occurs eight times in Ecclesiastes. In nearly all these occurrences, the term is collocated with a negative modifier or complement, such as evil or frustration, or with active verbs such as to do or to gather. This syntactical usage gains significance when evaluated in the light of other data. The terms ana to, to afflict, humiliate, and ani, affliction, are never collocated with negative terms such as ra or kaas elsewhere in the Old Testament, presumably because adding these other terms would be redundant. What I'm saying here is, inyan has to be qualified as a negative thing. It's not inherently negative. Therefore, that should uh, affect our understanding of the word ana that's related to it. I go on. The idea of misery is likely integral to those forms to the extent that it is unnecessary to characterize an act of humiliation or suffering as bad. In assessing inyan as evil, Kohela appears to have in mind an activity that is unnaturally calamitous rather than an affliction which would by its nature be calamitous. This understanding is bolstered by the collocation of inyan with verbs of movement, lending credence that inyan corresponds mostly to human preoccupation or busyness. Beyond this, if his terminology corresponds to anatu, then Kohela is asserting that God has afflicted or humiliated mankind, a notion that would be inconsistent with his assertions elsewhere that human travail arises from sin rather than God, and that God is the creator and giver of good gifts. Second, the meaning of afflict or humiliate or respond answer does not suit the nuances of ana and inyan in several occurrences within the book. And I'll, I'll, you can, if you want to go back and read this uh, later in more detail, you can look at those examples. Next paragraph, the, the third. Lexical evidence for ana three, although rather slender, is furnished from Semitic cognates and from the Septuagint. Halak catalogs the lexeme ana in Old South Arabian with the meaning to be troubled and in Arabic with the notions of be concerned, be worried, or be occupied with. This meaning may in fact best suit the use of ana in Isaiah 31.4. There the prophet affirms that a lion is not dismayed by the shouts of a band of gathering shepherds, nor troubled by, occupied with, or distracted by their commotion. Although the lexicons, as well as several English versions, render the term uh, along the contours of homonym two, 
a meaning that aligns with ana three might fit better. All right, likewise, the Septuagint translators render a non-Ecclesiastes with the meaning, with the term uh, paraspao, to be pulled away, be distracted, be overburdened. Uh, so the Nets translates an unhappy preoccupation God has given human beings uh, with which to be preoccupied. This Greek term consistently renders anathri and its three occurrences in Ecclesiastes. They use a different word in Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Uh, if you go to the next sentence, the term paraspao occurs once in the New Testament in the account of Jesus' rebuke of Martha following her preoccupation or distraction with her many preparations. The Septuagint furnishes two bits of important evidence. First, they viewed the semantic purview of ana as connoting distraction or busyness. Second, by rendering ana as answer in Ecclesiastes 10.19, they're essentially saying there are two homonyms. So collectively, these lines of evidence suggest a unique root for Ana in Ecclesiastes. The term Ana evokes, as Seau summarizes, the notions of restlessness, obsession, worry, and human inability to find enjoyment. So I argue in the commentary that we should gloss Ana as to be occupied with, concerned with, busily engaged with, and the cognate inyan as task, preoccupation, or concern. Kohela is already discovering that his fruitless quest for wisdom solution to human effort will prove a most troublesome and highly fatal work. All right, so that's 113. God has given a ta uh, that there's a, a task that keeps us busy. Here it's the God-given task in 310. In 310, Kohelet reiterates this root ana. He says, I have observed the task that God has given men to keep them occupied. Here, Kohelet's observation focuses on the task, preoccupation, or concern God has given to humans. The task is characterized not as evil or grievous as in other places. Such connotations may be implied nevertheless by the relentless occupation or busyness that man experiences as a result of God's hidden structuring of his time and work. God has given this task. That term appears 25 times in Ecclesiastes and is collocated with God as the overt or implied subject 12 times. So in other words, he's concerned with what God gives. The idiom focuses on God's sovereign bestowal or dissemination of a quality or material good. God's ultimate gift is life itself, concretized through the giving of the human spirit. Most often in Ecclesiastes, God gives qualities such as wisdom, knowledge, joy, or a sense of the transcendent. Elsewhere, the gifts are more tangible, namely wealth or a wife. Here, the gift is the task or occupation to keep the sons of man busy or preoccupied. Kohelet characterizes humans as the sons of man 10 times in the book with the highest concentration in the next unit. This phrase denotes finite mortal humanity collectively or generally. And I have a chart there of the uh, similarities between 113 and 310. Below the chart, I say, while the task is not characterized as grievous, as in, uh, in 310, a sense of frustration may be implied by the fact that man cannot find out the beginning from the end of God's work, as well as by the earlier phrasing of 113, which colors this text. Lavoie thus characterizes the God-given preoccupation, a poisoned gift mitigated only by some portion of goodness and the relative joy humanity can derive from successful labor. Okay, two other passages and then uh, we'll draw some implications. Uh, the preoccupied mind in 520, which is the English text uh, 19 in the Hebrew text. In 520, Kohelet notes that joy can provide a distraction to the human mind even amongst the painful realities of a fallen world. 
for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied, that's the same word, with the joy of his heart. Kohelet concludes uh, his commendation of joy with its third benefit and engages the celebrant's attention so as to stave off life's sorrow and hardship. He qualifies joy here in a twofold fashion as a foil to the brevity of life and thus to be grasped with a sense of urgency and as a design of God so that the joy can be appropriated specifically as divine grant. Here, the one who forgets is removing himself from the pain and frustration of the sin-cursed world exemplified in the days of his life and is moving toward God by means of the joy-inducing gifts he provides. But the movement is not total. He says he will not much remember The wise and grateful worker cannot escape completely the ravages of the sin curse, but attains a temporary reprieve in the acknowledgement and appropriation of God's good gifts. And connecting memory to the days of one's lifetime, the strange convergence of memory with time is underscored. Within the ideological world of the Old Testament, memory serves not merely to relive the past, but to bring the past into the present so as to reorient thoughts and behavior for the future. Past, present, and future are thus actualized into an ontological unity through the conscious retrieval of memory. The reason that the wise and grateful worker forgets for a time the pain and difficulty of life is because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. The key, the conjunction there is is causal uh, because rather than these other uh, options. God is mentioned for the fourth time in the unit. The verb anah is commonly taken to mean answer, or to be busy with. Uh, Dalich champions the former on account of the absence of a direct accusative. Um, so that's the position he argues. Uh, if you skip down a couple sentences, I say, and weighing the options. And weighing the options, the latter homonym has more frequent distribution in the book, and this connotation makes better sense contextually. While this homonym has more to commend it, the lack of an accusative is problematical. I follow BHS in amending uh, this uh, to, with an objective suffix to keep him occupied uh, following Goldman there. Uh, so skipping to the next paragraph, uh, this is the fifth of eight occurrences of the nominal form simcop, joy or pleasure, and the only time it is collocated in a construct genitive relationship with heart. The genitive is likely subjective, denoting that his heart rejoices as his God-given occupation. The joy energizes his intellect, will, and affections, causing him to be occupied as a temporary reprieve against the pain and frustrations of life. Yet the enjoyment is not a numb palliative, but an active pursuit, redemptive in nature. This kind of joy is a gift from God. All right, and then the last example is 1019. The final use of Anah occurs in 1019. Bread is made for laughter and wine cheers the living, but money preoccupies everyone. If you, a lot of English translations say money is the answer for everything, so you may be familiar with the text being construed that way. I'm arguing that it actually means it keeps everyone occupied or busy. The relation of this proverb to the preceding is unclear, although interpreters have offered ingenious solutions. The most common is that the proverb details the behavior of the profligate princes in verse 16, whose victuals and drink come at the public expense. This understanding requires a negative reading of the proverb, but verbal links with his earlier commendations of joy suggest he views consuming material goods as a positive most of the time. The word samak or rejoice here uh, always carries a positive sense of genuine enjoyment of life elsewhere in the book. 
bread and wine are prominent in his earlier calls to joy. So then others have suggested that verse 18 corresponds to the laziness and self-indulgence of bad leaders, while verse 19 corresponds to the health and vitality of good leaders. In either case, human joy derives from having the basic necessities of life met with a hint that these goods also have a way of overtaking their users if not managed well. The final stich, that's the final uh, phrase there, clause, refers to money. The term kesef means silver or money. The article, uh, when compared to the anarthrous bread and wine, shows that the final stich is the emphasis of the proverb. And it's, in other words, it's about uh, money. The vav carries an adversative sense uh, as the punch of the saying, but money. The verb anah is usually understood by the versions in its most common Old Testament sense of answer. In my comments on the root 113, I argue that anah in Ecclesiastes is a unique homonym, meaning to be occupied, concerned with, or busily engaged with. In each of the preceding cases, the Septuagint translators likewise render this with paraspao, to be distracted. Here, however, they render it with the more common ana one uh, with the term uh, epikuo, which means to hear or to heed. Many interpreters follow this tack of answer as the gloss, but with various nuances. This is how they kind of explain answering, that money reveals everything. Money is a god or oracle giving, the inf giving information to the consumer. Money responds favorably to everything, grants whatever one wishes. Money corresponds to everything, provides for every contingency. Money takes action in everything, shows power for corrupt people. On the other hand, next paragraph, some interpreters favor seeing Kohela as consistent here with his earlier uses of Anah 3 and saying that money keeps everyone or everything busy or preoccupied. This approach favors parsing the verb as hifil rather than cal. Although possible to read hakol, that is all, as the impersonal everything, the personal sense is preferable everyone since the point of the proverb concerns human behaviors. While either answers or preoccupies is possible, I lean toward the latter sense for a couple of reasons. First, this sense is consistent with Kohelet's customary usage of anah. Second, the other stikoi relate to the effect these goods have on humans, while assigning an impersonal meaning would render it generic things. Third, this preserves a proper balance between the positive and negative emphases of the saying. Positively, food and wine bring joy if properly used. Yet humans' attitude toward money shows that sinners usually end up misappropriating good gifts. The point is that our material goods bring us joy, but if unchecked, these goods will end up consuming us. All right, then the joyful response to this, 224 to 26, and then I'll draw some implications. In view of the preceding conclusions on work, Kohelet concludes his royal autobiography with the first of seven commendations of joy. He says there, this, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. Even this I realized is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? For God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to the one who pleases him, but he gives to the sinner the task of accumulating possessions to give to the one who pleases God. This too is enigmatic and chasing wind. In these summary conclusions, the joy motif is pervasive. And in each conclusion, God is overtly present to sanction the wise disposal of the gifts he has granted. Moreover, Kohelet has already rejected hedonism by establishing that the pursuit of sheer pleasure is folly. He has recognized that enjoyment and reward may be found in labor. Nowhere does he conclude that life is meaningless or futile. Such understandings derive from misinterpretations of Hevel. Kohelet's angst arises instead from the fact that life is meaningful. 
although beset by the ravages of the sin curse. This is why I uh, always argue against the NIV rendering of Hevel as meaningless. If life were really meaningless, why is Kohelet so frustrated? Life has purpose even when racked by hardship, pain, and worry. In addition, Kohelet's conclusion should be viewed as at least a partial and positive response to the programmatic question of 1-3. That question, what does man derive from his labor, has directed much of Kohelet's discussion to this point. Here, Kohela acknowledges that some benefit may derive from labor if one enjoys its fruits with wisdom and contentment, thus ascribing to work uh, a significance beyond mere futility. One must look beyond the things themselves to the gift giver to have the proper perspective, otherwise the joy is a wholly selfish, let them eat cake pursuit. As to the import of the better than form in Ecclesiastes, uh, Ogden argues it serves to highlight Kohelet's values by opening or closing a unit. Uh, etc. The next paragraph, I talk about eating and drinking. Uh, this occurs here for the first time in the book. Uh, I kind of want to skip over that to the last paragraph of this section where I say, Kohelet commends this enjoyment of life with respect to one's toil. The bait preposition governing Amal has been interpreted variously as temporal, instrumental, price, accompaniment, or locative. The latter is most likely as his toil is the sphere in which he is to experience inward satisfaction over what God has given him. Brown is right when he affirms, contrary to popular opinion, Kohelet does not disparage work. He redefines it by dislodging it from the arena of the marketplace and setting it within the ethos of enjoyment. Work is good. It was created before the fall and its fruits can be appropriated joyfully if the laborer keeps the proper perspective and uses the gifts properly. All right, so this is where then I try to draw some implications and conclusion toward a theology of work in Ecclesiastes. Kohelet's repeated conclusions emphasized, emphasizing chastened joy in a fallen world are an echo and extension of the sin, judgment, grace cycle in Genesis 1 to 11. Given that sin has intruded into the creation and that judgment has rendered mankind afflicted and sentenced to death, the way to begin to reclaim grace and restore harmony is to embrace wisdom and to thoughtfully enjoy God's good gifts. To embrace wisdom echoes the creation account in appropriating the light-darkness theme because wisdom is more advantageous than folly as light is more advantageous than darkness. To enjoy God's gifts judiciously is to restore the proper place and purpose of fruitful human work as God designed for his image bearers. Although work may be frustrating and dissatisfying because of the curse, finding satisfaction in the fruit of one's labor harks back to the reward man has promised in his original tasks in the garden. Russell Meek suggests that this approach allows humans to hark back in a limited or provisional way to their pre-fall existence in that these gifts were fundamental features of life in the Garden of Eden and can only be enjoyed in the presence of God under the restraints he commands while humans have breath. Eating with joy fulfills a major purpose in God's gifting of the land to his people and setting his name to dwell there. In this way, joyful consumption serves as an integral aspect of sustaining a vibrant covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people, as in Deuteronomy. Yet in spite of the kinship between humanity and the created order, humanity's roles and relationships have been fundamentally altered by the fall and by the sin curse resulting in death, Genesis 3. Kohelet's frustration comes from the reality that mankind's dominion over creation has been broken and twisted. Mankind is bereft of his ability to rule effectively within the created order because of his own 
mortality. His encroaching death robs him of an ultimate distinction from the animals. Man is left powerless in the face of death like the crude beasts. Kohelet's solution is to commend enjoyment in the present by finding satisfaction in one's work. This impulse for human satisfaction in work is understood best in the context of a biblical theology of work. Darrell Cosden outlines a proper view of work as including ends that are necessarily instrumental, that is useful to some purpose, such as survival or growth, relational, aiming toward human sociality and fulfillment, and ontological, essential to human nature. Human work is not the result of the fall, rather the uh, work has been built into the fabric of creation by God. The person is a worker, not as an accident of nature, but because God is first a worker and persons are created in his image. Humanity's work, however, is not identical to God's, but is specific to our created existence. The perhaps well-intentioned tendency to discriminate between so-called essential work and non-essential work undercuts the dignity of humans in general and of the varied kinds of work they engage in. While, while work thus provides limited satisfaction in the present fallen order, it is warped and burdened by the sin curse. Intrinsically, nonetheless, work is good and will continue thus into the new creation. Cosden explains this as follows. The basic human characteristics of bodily existence as well as a bodily existence itself are seen as continuing into the new creation. The implications of this are immense. Human life in the new creation will still be fundamentally a recognizable human life. That which has gone before in human life, here without the sin, mortality, suffering, and grief, will also continue into the new, only it will be qualitatively new since it has been transformed. Human purpose, therefore, will be transformed and freed from sin, mortality, suffering, and grief, but it will still be the same human purpose, which now includes, among other things, projects and work. Fulfillment and work is thus a foretaste of the full joy humans will experience in the work of the new creation, work that is neither tainted nor thwarted by sin. Kohelet's call to joy and work aligns well with other more general calls to joy in Scripture. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, elsewhere the Old Testament commends joy in the gift of life, Job 3:7, in the years of one's lifetime, Ecclesiastes 11:8, in one's spouse, Proverbs 5, in family relationships, Proverbs 23, and in fellowship with God, where God Himself will rejoice in His people. Jesus promises to give his disciples his full joy, a joy that cannot be revoked or diminished. Kohelet looked forward to that day as do we. All right, so this is a quick basic overview of this idea of what Ecclesiastes is about. And so I'm kind of tracing this idea of a tension between uh, work in the context of creation and work as a result of the fall. And I argue that his solution is to recognize that work can have intrinsically good qualities but it, ha it has those good qualities when we recognize that God has given us gifts and resources that we have to use in the way that he designed while understanding that we're mortal and limited, we're finite, and we face our own death in the future.